0: your children for a Bible lesson. And so, junior church, if your age is three years old through fifth grade, you are dismissed to Bible explorers, we call it. Thank you for serving in that way. Miss Trinka, that's great. All right. Well, again, my greetings to you. My name is Josh. get to be one of the pastors here. Privileged to serve you and privileged to sing with you. Thank you for singing over me. There is no greater blessing than to hear God's Word, right? Hear it read. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you so much, Jill. Question. Do you check your email messages and phone messages at home? Answer. Have you been around much this millennia? Question. Do you make use of any flexible working arrangements made available by your employer? Answer, definitely. I work at home, I work in the car, I'm working on holiday tomorrow. I pretty much can work anywhere. Question, do your friends and family complain per se uh, about not getting enough time with you? I wouldn't call it complaining they are still learning that quality time is more important than quantity time. Question, do you have enough time to pray? Answer, I'm more of a pray continually kind of person. I don't need to set aside specific times to pray with God because I'm always in communion with God. Question, do you eat together as a household at least one time per day? Answer, more or less, when one person is eating, usually another person is in the house at the same time. Well, Tim Chester's diagnostic questions expose the problem that he calls hurry sickness. We just call it busyness. Busyness is a sheer fact of the modern world. It's our choice. David Wells says this, Our life is now punctuated by unending computer pings, cell phone jingles and beeps of one kind or another. We are living on multiple fronts simultaneously. It has given rise to a cultural attention deficit disorder. We are all just crazy busy. He says, even the kids among us, we plan activities for them down to 30 minutes each. The screens beckon them like a moth into a multimedia glare. Well, we are crazy busy. But at what cost? In his helpful little book, Kevin DeYoung, we have 75 of these. I mean, like, look, it's, it's, it's this, okay? 75 out back, see him at the door, love to give you one. Kevin DeYoung points out three dangers of crazy busyness. Danger number one, busyness robs our joy. Danger number two, busyness can rob our hearts. The seed of God's word can land on its soil this morning, but what does Jesus say in Matthew 13, 22? It is the cares of this world that choke out the profitability of the word of God. For most of us, it is not heresy that derails our faith. It's I'm too busy. Kevin DeYoung says, busyness has killed more Christians than bullets. Danger number three, busyness can cover up the rot and decay in our souls. We don't see it. So ask yourself this morning, what is behind your busyness? Why do we make those decisions? Why do we allow ourselves to be that cluttered? We're going to get real. Is it a hedge against your emptiness I mean obviously your life can't be trivial or meaningless if your book solid if you're in demand every hour you must be important you must be significant you must have it together but what's really driving you trying to cover up knowing who you are or where you're headed Are you letting everyone else sell you an identity or at least keeping you distracted from needing one? Well, on this Lord's day, could you see that this pause, this interruption of your schedule, of your busyness to sit and to hear and to seemingly do nothing, could this Lord's day be a gift to you? A gift to encourage you from your interruptions to reevaluate this deal that you brokered with everydayness? I'm busy. I mean, how do you introduce yourself? Hey, what's going on this week, Josh? I'm busy. I'm swamped. I actually had a friend ask me, hey, what are you doing this week? And I answered with every detail that I was doing this week. And he goes, actually, I was just looking to see if you could help me on Tuesday. (laughs) It's like, oh, I thought I had to prove to him that the pastor was working Monday through Saturday, not just the one day a week on Sunday like oh I'm writing a sermon about that shortly (laughs) Jim Batchelder thank you for your question (laughs) well what if scripture this morning could you hear scripture differently what if it was an appeal to you that you could meet a friend who could open the door and say welcome home you can rest here Our answers to life's fundamental questions have been coming from Genesis one through three. We're using Genesis one through three to reorient us. In our very first sermon on this series, we talked about that Genesis is like a rowboat, right? Remember a rowboat? You face one direction in a rowboat, but you go in another. And that's what we're doing in the book of Genesis. We are looking back to ancient wisdom to fix, to orient, to stabilize us while we are trying to go forward in this chaotic world. Genesis helps to orient us. It has already told us where we came from. It told us who made us and who we are. And now in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it takes us to the very heart of it. Why are we here? Day 7 answers the question, what is the purpose of it all? What is the meaning of life? Where is it all headed? Let's hear God's word. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want to suggest to you this morning that we were made for being with our Creator God, sharing in His rest, enjoying relationship with Him. The big idea of the sermon is to rest in God alone, because God alone can provide you rest to enjoy Him forever. To prove this point, I want us to see two things from this text. First. There is more that matters than matter, right? There's more to life than life. There is a point to life within this world. And then I wanna look at how this text, as it finds itself in the opening chapters of Genesis, the whole of the Bible, and look at to where this is pointing and how Christ fits into all of this. So the second point this morning is that Jesus' rest is better than the rest. Point one, There's more that matters than matter. Point two, Jesus' rest is better than the rest. First, there is more that matters than matter. This text speaks of completion, perfection, possession, duration, and location. Each of those prove the point that there is more that matters than matter. First, look at the completion. We see that as God starts, what he starts, he finishes. The Bible begins with in the beginning, And sure enough, by day seven, the heavens and the earth were finished. God has what it takes to see things through to completion. He doesn't run out of cash or energy or time or life. He doesn't flag what he starts, he finishes. But there's an important clarification. Did you notice as we were reading this text down there in verse 3, that what God completes is His work done in creation. God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. So this resting speaks not of ceasing from work altogether. This resting is more the idea of God's completion, not God's cessation. That's the point from this text. Now, because the language used here is the language of rest, and because rest is translated Sabbath in other places, And because people often misunderstand Sabbath, we get this picture. I read it last night at the kitchen table with the kids. And when you read that God rested, you know what they all did at the very end? They started snoring. Janelle made the snoring sound. Now at first, I'll be honest, as a dad, I was like, was she snoring at God's word? And I was like, oh, this is not good. And Laura goes, no, I don't think that's what she was doing. I think she was just giving sound effects to what you read. And that's the picture that we have, right? That after God did all this work in six days that he deserves a well-earned day off as if God was simply exhausted. And so now, whew, wiping the sweat from his brow, finding his favorite armchair, putting his feet up, he snores. That's the picture that we have. But the picture here is that God does not get tired. God does not need a sabbatical. Rather, he finishes his work of making everything that he set out to do, and now he just sustains what he made. He enjoys it. We know that God continues in his work because Christ said this, Matthew or John 5, 17, Jesus says, my father has been working till now, and I too am working. God never stopped working. If he did, even for a moment, I think the whole thing would just implode. Second, perfection. We already learned that what God made six times, His handiwork, He says that it was good in verses 1 through 30. And finally, on the sixth day, at the end of the chapter, for the seventh time, God says over His creation, it was very good. Now, I am not a scholar in Hebrew, but the good news is that you don't have to be one either. All we have to do is know this. I am told that the number seven is the number of perfection. And if you can count seven Hebrew words, you can see just how amazing chapters one through two are. You wanna do that with me? Here we go. First, the very first sentence of the Bible in Hebrew, guess how many words in the very first sentence of Genesis 1-1, seven. Then we have God mentioned 35 times in chapter 1, which is a multiple of 7. And then his speech is 14 times, another multiple of 7. And then the verdict that God says it was good, you guessed it how many times? Seven. Everything just as God intended it to be. The number of perfection. Job done according to an amazing plan. But what has all of this work been working towards? Again, the number seven helps us. On each occasion, on the seventh day, where it is here in chapter two, each sentence that has the seventh day mentioned, guess how many words are in each sentence? Seven. God started chapter one with seven words. Chapter 2 ends with three, a triplet of sevens. It's beautifully crafted, and the point the author is making is that this universe that God created is perfect, and he rested from his perfect work of creation. But he does do something on day 7. He takes possession of it. Glance again at verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy. He blessed it, made it holy. If you're new to being in church, what does holy mean? When you make something holy, you are setting it apart for special use. To bless something means to confer your favor upon it. So young people think about it this way. I don't know if you ever went to your grandparent's house, but it's typically when you become grandparent age that you notice that your grandfather maybe has a special chair. Have you noticed that? One time, I remember going to my grandfather's house and I asked, Is that your chair? To which he responded, They're all mine. (laughs) (laughs) There you have it. Yes, yes, they are all his. But you know how granddad has that certain chair. And God is declaring the seventh day particularly to be holy, set apart for a special use. It is the first time in the entire Bible that the word holy is used. It is also the last time we hear the word holy in all of Genesis, it's the only place. He confers his favor on this day. He blesses it. He calls it good. Here's what you should be thinking at this point. If there is a day to be in, that's the one. I want to share in the seventh day. That's where creation is headed. It's what we were made for. Remember the point of the whole sermon? That we were made for being in a relationship with our creator God, sharing in his rest, enjoying relationship with him. Well, here's the next big surprise, duration. Look at the end of verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Did you notice that verse 3 breaks a pattern that we've had for days 1 through 6? My kids had to read Genesis pretty much like for the past three weeks every morning and they got tired of reading Genesis 1. Dad, there's so much repetition and you're making us read it again. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, and God saw, and God made, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, and God made, and God called, and there was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, and God saw, and God made, there was evening and morning the sixth day. Now day seven. What are you expecting to hear? There is evening, there is morning, the seventh day. Do we get it? No. No morning, no evening. The seventh day does not go as expected. This is a day that does not come to an end. There is no eighth day it suggests to the careful reader that this Sabbath rest of God is intended in its original setting as an eternal state of favor, blessed existence in God's perfect creation. Here's what God is working towards, an eternal rest that does not end. Location, last. Finally, this point here, that there is more that matters than matters, is underscored, I believe, just because of the place of where we find day seven. Every major chunk in Genesis is introduced by a phrase, these are the generations of. Let me show you. Genesis 2.4. Go ahead and flip there. Genesis 2.4. What do we see? These are the generations of. Chapter 5, verse 1. Go ahead and flip there. Next major section in Genesis, this is the book of the generations of, chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah, chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Each major section in Genesis continues with, These are the generations of. It forms a unit. And so before we have those headings, so to speak, we know that Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is its own unit. It's the prologue to what is going to serve as chapter divisions almost. Okay, and before we really start, right, this part one, this prologue of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, we see that God has six days, and those six days form two pairs. Day 1 through 3, God forms. Days 4 through 6, God fills. Nice and neat structure, but then there's this day... That doesn't fit. It kind of stands outside of the structure. It's not really part of chapter two because it doesn't start with these are the generations of, but it's not really part of days one through six either. It just stands in its location just going, why put it here? Why has the author done this? Because Moses anticipates that we are all going to be tempted to distort how we find meaning Out of human life in other words day seven informs you that you are not gonna find your meaning in life by looking around at days one through six the only way you're gonna find meaning in life is if you look for it elsewhere by looking up at day seven where there is God who rested our fundamental purpose for why we are here is not found in days one through six We read this, and we should be asking, well, then what am I living for? What have I tried to find meaning and purpose in? All these other things are great gifts from God, but if you try to find something or someone in days one through six, it will end in tears. If you make that your identity. You can't cut out day seven any more than you can chop off one wing of an airplane and expect it to fly. We were made for God. And that's what we were created for. And so it shouldn't be surprising that nothing else in days one through six ultimately satisfies. Does work satisfy? Does relationship satisfy? Having children, do they return to you the blessing that you want? (sighs) I think the chuckles reveal. Like the goldfish. Out of the goldfish bowl, it feels a certain restless dis-ease as it is flopping here on the floor because it is not in the environment that it was created to be. And the only cure for our restless dis-ease is when you find your rest in God. Because that's what you were made for. Have you heard that prayer? I think we have it there for you in the program from Augustine who wrote, You have made us for thyself, and we are restless until we find our rest in thee. You are made for more than just carving out an existence in this matter called earth. There is a seventh day. There is an eternity for which you were made to enjoy your creator God in relationship with him. But that's where the next surprise comes from. As you read the day seven, as you read The Seventh Day, you are probably struck by the fact that there's no humanity in it. It speaks about God. Where are we? Do we get to share in this rest of God or not? If this is what creation is for, is there a place for us? Is there a place for me? You're bound to want to know more. You want to look for rest. Well, You're spurred to read on, and the good news is the story of the Bible is how God will share his rest with those made in his image. Let's see how he does that. Our second point, Jesus' rest is better than the rest. If you understand Genesis 2, 1 through 3 properly, you're actually going to understand who Jesus is. At the end of Genesis 3, you're going to have Adam and Eve shut out of the Garden of Eden. Access to God's garden of rest denied. They are now going to enter into a world in which they will find no rest. It's a disaster. And the fact that we can't share in the rest of God should be unbearable to us. So I want to ask you, my friend, are you sick and tired of life on the road? disappointed with rest stop food and cheap hotels that we call success. Hey, I made it to the varsity team. That only lasts for a little bit, because then it's saying, not only did I make the varsity team, but hey, I gotta play. And that lasts for a little bit until you say, hey, I gotta start. And then it's like, well, that lasts for a little while until it's what? I made it a Division I college as a walk-on. And then it was, wow, riding the bench is really not fun. <laughs> Hey, I got married. She likes me. Ah, kids. That will satisfy. Ah, I got that career in the job that I actually wanted in that career field. That will satisfy. We got that house, got that second house on the lake in the mountains. Oh, my friends, all these little rest food stops the cheap hotels that we call success, has the pleasure of the journey turned stale to prompt you to ask, is there anything that ultimately satisfies? Has it prompted you to ask, can we get back to Eden? Have we lost our opportunity to enjoy God's rest forever? Well, the Bible says you actually can't return to Eden, but you can still be welcomed home in a place that you were not born, in a place that you have never seen, and yet you can still be told you belong here. From Genesis two, we don't hear anything else about Sabbath or rest until Exodus 16, verses 22 through 26. And Exodus 16, through 26, the next time we hear of this rest, and it is when Israel has been rescued by God, and God says, I'm gonna provide manna on six days but there will be none on the seventh day. I want you resting. I want you ceasing from work. You've been a slave for 400 years. It's worth noting that as a Sabbath principle, it's ultimately about trust. Can these people who have been slaves for 400 years now find their identity so much in who God says they are that they actually find that they can stop working? You know, I asked my kids last night, would it be easier if you've been a slave for 400 years to keep working day after day after day, or would it be easier to stop for one? I think we all know the answer to that. If we've been used to running on the treadmill, did anybody here actually find it hard to stop? You know what the most scary thing I might actually be asked to do is? Josh, take a Sabbath for three months, get off the treadmill of writing sermons. What am I going to do? I've been running. You've been running. And if, you've, if your identity's been tied up in days one through six of performance, then what do you do when it's nothing to perform? You gotta be skiing. <laughs> you gotta be skiing. Enjoying God's creation. You know, maybe we should go skiing while we're on sabbatical. <laughs> maybe we should. Do something different. I share that to say that this sermon is Convicting. Because the Israelites didn't actually trust God, did they? They were so used to to provide for themselves and work and work and work that when God says, hey, rest one day, they still go out there and they try to gather. And they don't trust God's sufficiency or God's supply. Resting, trusting God's sufficiency, trusting God's supply is the principle of Sabbath. God is establishing in his grace for his people a weekly reminder that there is more to your life than your work. Small business owners that are tempted to work seven days, I don't know how you don't check emails, answer calls, give bids, open the shop up for a client. But there is a principle each week that there's a day pointing back that there is a rest that only God can give rest in God alone. It's from that that he begins to put it kind of in a formalized way. The next part we hear about the Sabbath rest is the Ten Commandments. And he grounds the Ten Commandments in who he is in creation. Listen to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servants, your female servants, even your livestock and the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and He made it holy. He grounds the command to rest in what He did. Fast forward 40 years, moving on to the Bible. And Moses repeats the law a second time in Deuteronomy, the second law giving. In Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, we hear that there's a different reason why we should practice rest. Listen to it now in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Ask the Lord your God and as He is commanded. Six days you shall work and do all your labor. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son, your daughters, your male servants, female servants, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Here's why. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day holy. Why are we to remember it? Not only because of creation But we remember this day, and we set it apart to remember our redemption. It's the day that you are no longer slaves, that you've been delivered. Sabbath should be practiced because God delivered you. For 450 years, you've been laboring in slavery, and God brought that to an end by redeeming you. Keep the Sabbath because I am your creator. Keep the Sabbath because I am your creator, Savior. Well, now you are ready, my church friends, to flip to Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. We know that the word rest is Sabbath, and the word Sabbath is rest. It's the exact same word, and now we hear this great and famous promise of Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. Have you ever seen it for what it is? Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you Genesis 2, 1 through 3. I will give you rest. He is not saying here, as many take it, that you can come to him at any time and he's going to make what seems hard in your life go exceptionally easy. That is not this verse. He is talking about finding rest for your souls. Jesus did a work for you to have rest in your souls. What was the work He did? He is bringing humanity into rest, a relationship with our Creator through His work on the cross. He carried God's judgment and it enables you to be forgiven so that you can enter into the rest of God. The first time, God got rest because creation work was finished. The second time, on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished so that we could get rest. Jesus brings a Sabbath rest into His eternal joy with Him forever. Until you see that God not only said it is finished on day seven of creation, but that also that God finished His work of redemption. Until you know that rest of redemption, you will be filled with restless dis-ease. Of course, the most popular way to quell that unsettling sense of your disease is by trying to make yourself feel at home in this world. Even if that just means distracting yourself. The question from the Nebraska farmer in Jack Kerouac's On the Road is a very good question. It's there at the front of your bulletin. The question that he asked this Nebraska farmer Jenny could do it in an accent, I'm sure. I cannot. You boys gonna get somewhere or are you just going? We didn't understand what he meant, but it was a very good question. You just going to be going? Or do you know that you can actually get somewhere and stop? Have you had to believe that the life is road? That there is no home? Well, the heart's hunger is always infinite, which is why we're never satisfied with anything that is finite. Days one through six don't satisfy. That's why Bono sings, we still haven't found what we are. Okay, good. good. You too, Bono. Just wanted to see if I was in the right genre here. All right, you guys know it but our restlessness is a reflection that we've been trying to live as if day one through six is all there is and we've tried to chop off day seven and say it doesn't matter that that there's a day seven. My friend, do you feel the exhaustion, the fatigue that you would have if you were to believe that all that matters is matter? I think that's how you start off in life. You can work and you can do it, and you think you're going to make a difference, and you're all about the cause or getting something. But then when you get to be my age, you kind of have reached some of those things, and then the temptation is this you have a little bit of despair, and instead of saying that all that matters is matter, now you say nothing matters. Right? I mean, if you can't find what matters, then just conclude nothing matters. Can you really live with that? Such resignation is a deep bass note, but it actually might be just the right time when you can heal this appeal of a sweet melody. Do you wish that someone could find you along the road called life and bring you home? Are you willing to hear that there is a rest and contentment that you are trying to find in all that you are looking for? And that a rest and contentment not comes in what you are trying to find, but that there is an eternal rest and contentment because you have been found. The greatest story, the story of the gospel, is that we find rest in God because God found us. I know you might think that if you've run away from God, God is up there in heaven tapping his foot with a really mean look on his face. And if you were to return home, you better sneak in a window. But what is the picture that we see in Luke 15? It is a father who has been looking for his son to return home and find rest. And it is a father who runs. Jesus is the God who runs. He is the shout of God appealing to you. Do you want a friend to take you home? The good news of the gospel is that God has provided Jesus to send us a ferry to cross the golden shore so we can find rest. We need Jesus. Why? Because in New England, we say we can't get there from? A map won't do, friends. You need somebody who invites you onto the raft to cross the sea of life into the golden shore, and God this morning is inviting you and says, come on, get in. I'll hold you. And like an exhausted refugee, fatigued by vulnerability, what we crave is rest, a place where our Creator Savior can say, you're safe here. The first application this morning is, have you entered into the rest of God? Have you entered into the stoppage of Jesus? The writer of Hebrews understood this. Jill read it for us this morning in Hebrews 4. Just listen again to verses 8 through 10. If Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. Just as God stopped working on the seventh day of creation, when you come to Christ and His finished work on the cross, you stop trying to attempt to earn your salvation. You repent of your sins. You put your faith in the Creator, Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you done this? He's powerful enough to save you, He's rescued you from your lifelong slavery to sin to give you a final rest in heaven. Listen to Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. He's powerful enough to save you, and He's compassionate enough to care for you. He told us that His harness and His yoke is easy, His burden is light because he's the only good master and Lord. Jesus' rest is better than the rest. Second application for those of you that are here that are Christ followers in this church, we're going to take the Lord's table together. As Christians, you know that Christ has already been your down payment of rest. But the writer of Hebrews ends there in Hebrews 4 and it says this, Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall. Strive? Rest? This changes your view of conversion. Faith family, a conversion to Christ is not an arrival at your final destination. Conversion is not a magical transport home. Conversion is the acquisition of a compass. It's the church now that helps you to know how to make the journey all the way home and how to help you adopt a posture of a refugee. It's in the news. I think we can use it. We're often used to hearing of Christians as a pilgrim, as a sojourner. Great. But I think we can also consider Christians to be a spiritual refugee, a migrant, vulnerable, exposed and unsettled people in search of refuge. You see, the goal of a refugee is not to return home. The goal of a wel- of a refugee is to be welcomed to a place, to be welcomed home to a place that you were not born, to a place that you have not ever seen, but to a place that you would be told you belong here. And I just think of refugees crossing the border and what I would want to have happen to me and to be received and my papers be read and to finally cross the shore and step on ground and to be welcomed. I think I could finally exhale. All the vulnerabilities, the violence, nose counting my kids as Pastor Pat's taught me, know where all of them are the exposure to hunger, giving up my food for them to eat, the security, the flourishing, the freedom, that I'm finally off the road. Conversion changes how you travel. Conversion gives you a compass. Conversion changes how you travel. You know, I don't know too many refugees that just go out there as a me They travel in tent cities. Faith family, we are a we, not just a me. And when we come to the table as a faith family, we remember our Lord, our. Melissa O'Brien, Josh, would you say our correctly? Yes, I got it the first time in a long time. Our, O-U-R. Conversion is joining the caravan, not setting out alone. You dare not set out alone on this immigration because just knowing where you are headed is not enough to protect you from all that could happen to you. It is not smooth sailing just because you have a compass. Even when you know where home is, the road can be hard. And a refugee spirituality that's from the Bible does not make false promises of the present. The prosperity gospel wants you to believe that there is peace, that there is joy in this present moment. But the Bible, read 1 Peter, read 2 Peter this afternoon, tells you that as a sojourner, as an immigrant, that your final home in getting there is filled with labors and burdens, uncertain and long. It's desert filled with sighing and weeping, at times even wailing and tribulation. It's a long way home from Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. And because we are immigrants, we need each other. So your church has been organized like a tent city. Better than this cathedral where it looks like we're unmovable. No, think of us as a tent city on the move together with organization. We have elders. They are here to help you spiritually get home. Care for your souls. Pray over you. Teach you. Model. Correct. Rebuke. Exhort. We do not have our elders oversee this church alphabetically. So many new people here, I thought it would be great to explain this just for a second. We don't have elders over A through C and D through F. We encourage you to get to know your elders. Find one that you connect with. Invite them into your life. If you want to know how to do that more, I'm sure we have extra copies of this at the door. How to build up your church. There's a whole thing in there about how to get to know your pastors and your elders. Second, another group we have is a deacon caring board. To care for your souls because along the road you need mercy. At times, the cares of this world can choke off the profitability of what the elders are trying to do, and so the Deacon Caring Board comes alongside and provides relief, ministry, focusing primarily on caring for any financial need that you might have, knowing that that could really cause you worry in this life. So your Deacon Caring Board, you can help them by bringing people to their attention that may be in need of that financial help and contributing to the Deacon Caring Board fund. That happens monthly. Finally, we encourage you to get plugged into a small group. These are the people who really know you. Know more about what you're about and your walk in the everydayness. It's there that the logistics of your burdens can be shared. We would expect it is in your small groups that meals are delivered for when you are sick. Likewise, opportunity to serve others when they're suffering trials. But your small group is really where that everyday logistical help happens and encourage you from the back of the bulletin to see all the small groups that exist. Well, faith family, as we prepare to take the Lord's table together, we are going to remember that we are to rest from our work and to trust. God's sufficiency, God's supply on display. He was in the tomb buried for three days. Don't think he was resting. He was working for us, satisfying the wrath of God, and he accomplished it. Resurrected to show that he had conquered death. Exalted high. God exalted him so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, where all things one day will be put underneath his feet, under his rule and reign, and all will finally be at Rest. Until that day, we will sojourn on as a faith family, remembering this of where we've come from and also where we are headed until he returns. So if anyone wanna come forward, we'll get ready to pass the communion plates.